You're listening to the Women in Philanthropy podcast series, a collaboration between Campbell and & Company and the Women's Philanthropy Institute. Join us for all four episodes to explore how gender impacts charitable giving. To learn more, visit www.campbellcompany.com. Hello, and thank you for joining us today for our Women in Philanthropy podcast. My name is Kate Roosevelt, and I'm Executive Vice President at Campbell and & Company, and I'm pleased to introduce my two fellow participants today, Andrea Pachter, who's the Interim Director of the Women's Philanthropy Institute at the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy at Indiana University, and Liz Vivian, President and CEO of the Women's Funding Alliance, which is based in Seattle, Washington. Andrea and Liz, great to have you with us today to talk through the causes that women support, why they support those causes, and what we can learn both from the research that is coming out of the Women's Philanthropy Institute, as well as our real-world lived experience. So thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. So, Andrea, I might start with you if I could. We're here to talk about where women and men give and how certain factors affect the causes that they support. So perhaps you could share some more context on this topic and why we are discussing it today. Hi, Kate. This is great. Uh, I would be glad to do that. This particular area of research can be a little confusing because it doesn't follow any pattern, it would seem, on the surface. But in reality, I think it's important to note two things. First of all, most of the research, um, virtually all the research at the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy deals with heterosexual households, and that is basically a result of the databases that we have that do not allow for a large enough sample size of the LGBTQ community at this point. I mean, that's, that will change. And so in, in heterosexual households, it's important to understand who's driving the giving to what causes so that fundraisers in this case can tailor their appeals to the people who are the ones behind giving in that cause. So if your cause is education and you're appealing to the man, you might want to think about that because in many cases it really is the woman who's driving that giving. The the other piece though, and and I think this is really important, is that these data points that I'm going to share in a minute really do tell us a little bit about why women support the kinds of causes they do. And the consistent pattern seems to be that women like to touch and see and feel what they're giving their dollars to. And um, the categories that we'll talk about, you can see those connections pretty clearly. But the other is that women tend to give to causes with which they can identify, either because they want, you know, the comment there, but for the grace of God, go I, or they want to lift up the community or their sisters within that community or something along those lines. So I think we're going to see some of those those themes as we go through the research. Thank you. That's really helpful, I think, just to get us all on the same page, so to speak, about some of the some of the elements that are unique to this research. And we'll circle back to a couple of the comments that you made, I think, in our closing remarks about what does all of this mean or what are some of the lessons that our our friends and colleagues in the nonprofit community in particular can take away from this research and apply to their work. So Andrea, I think just as to, to start us off then, let's wrap our 
minds around the top causes that women and men support and how are they the same and how are they different? What does the research tell us? We've looked at three different kinds of categories in, in which um, the research comes. So the first would be female-headed households, the second would be women-dominant giving circles, and then the third is across income. So let me go back to the first one. The top five areas in which female-headed households are likely more than their male counterparts to give are in international, in community, in religion, in healthcare, and the final is in youth and family areas. So the pretty diverse range there, but to me, there's some consistent issues um, within them we can talk about with Liz. In the women-dominant giving circles, in most giving circles, 70% of giving circles are women-dominant, so we're talking about a large number of people. The top three causes are human services, women and girls, and education. Then when you break it down by income, the general population and the high net worth population, and you look at marital status, in this case, single women are more likely to prioritize women's rights than single men, and they're less likely to prioritize the economy and veterans' issues than single men. Really uh, interesting, and I, you know, digging through your research and also looking at some other studies that I know we all have access to, one of, an interesting data point that stood out to me as well is that women are more likely to be engaged in impact investing than men, which I thought uh, found to be quite interesting. So Liz, true this up for us. I mean, tell us a little bit from your perspective, the Women's Funding Alliance has a, a very strong agenda to advance leadership and economic opportunity for women and girls in Washington State. You are out in the world talking with people of all genders about giving to these causes. And I just would love to hear what you what you see as sort of some common themes between these areas that women are are more likely to support and and what you think the motivations are. Hi, thank you. Well, I think it is really interesting learning to think about the research and what we're seeing real life as we're fundraising. So, Women's Funding Alliance is also a unique organization in that we make our impact in part by also being a grant maker. So we have this opportunity to think about both how are we engaging donors and how are we being engaged as an institutional funder or even a pool of donors by other organizations. So we've had the opportunity to test this out in a number of different ways. And one of the things we're seeing is that women are very much motivated, as Andrea said, by things that have affected their own lives. We give because we understand what other women are up against. We want to be really supportive in lifting up our families and our communities. And so I think that is fundamental. I also think it's really of note that 70% of giving circles or organized giving in that way are women because women tend to want to come together in groups. We like to get together over a cup of tea or a glass of wine and talk about what's important to us. We like learning to be part of our philanthropy. And that comes really naturally when you get to do that as part of a group. So all of that is ringing true for me as I think about the work we're doing here in Washington State. Thank you. Yeah, that's one of the things that resonated with me in terms of women's 
desire to give to international organizations and causes, I was reminded of a, an experience I had almost 20 years ago now, participating in a trip to Central America organized by a microfinance organization. And the, the tagline for the trip was women investing in women. And the idea was this organization wanted to take women leaders from the Seattle area to meet with uh, socialize with and share experiences with emerging leaders in uh, two Central American countries, as well as some of the women who were receiving microfinance, microloans to to start or grow their businesses. And it was it was a really profound experience. And I think you had this feeling of sort of sisterhood, and also wanting to support women through challenges that that some of us had faced and encountered in our lives was very, very powerful. So I get it, and uh, it, all, it all makes perfect sense to me. Andrea, back to the research. What does the research tell us about how women and men give to both their religious uh, organizations as well as to secular causes? What's the same and, and what's different here? This particular area is a little counterintuitive to me. Because the research shows that in giving to congregations, so in other words, those are going to be the religious institutions, you know, that folk, you know, like a, a church, a synagogue, a mosque, the household where the husband is the sole decision maker is the most likely to give. And that is, that's counterintuitive to me because my gut tells me that women probably spend more time at church or at the synagogue or at, at the mosque or other faith institution. And so I don't understand really what's driving that, but that's what the research shows. Single women are the most likely to give to secular causes, and they give the highest amounts when you compare them as a group to single men and married men and women. So is the implication there that single women are less religious? I, I don't know that for a fact, but, but I think it's, it's kind of interesting. And of course, giving to religion is a very high priority, according to Giving USA. I mean, it's the largest category of giving, something around the vicinity of 35%. And then in today's world, that whole issue of giving to congregations is challenging because we're running into more and more people who are unaffiliated. They're called the nuns, not as in a Catholic nun, but the N-O-N-E-S, the nuns. And so what are the implications for philanthropy if the motivation for giving comes out of a faith tradition? And these are some of the really perplexing issues that our colleagues at the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy are analyzing, as well as the community at large, and especially uh, congregations because so many congregations are seeing dwindling membership. Yeah, interesting. And thank you for referencing the Giving USA data and you know you're you're absolutely right in terms of religion accounting for the largest share of recipient organizations for charitable activity in the United States and at the same time that slice of the pie so to speak has been uh shrinking. Uh, the share of the pie has been shrinking steadily for all of the reasons that you have you've stated. And there's even I have just heard as recently as last week some some research out showing the connection between the declining participation in religious activities with the overall decline of donors in the United States. I mean, to the tune of I think 20 to 21 million fewer households 
that are giving today as a result of our re reduced uh, participation in religious activities. I'm also struck by this finding about single women being most likely to give to secular causes. And Liz, I wonder, how does that fit with your experience at Women's Funding Alliance and the women that you work with as donors and partners and supporters of your work? Yeah, that's a fascinating question to think about. While we get to know many of our donors very well and we understand the full range of where they might be giving, I don't know that I have enough data points to really be able to compare similar to the way the research has across households and whether they're giving to religious or secular causes. What I think is really interesting about it in part is that we see different patterns in different parts of Washington state. And because we do work statewide, I think that our work here in Puget Sound, which tends to be less, tends to have people who are less affiliated with a particular congregation than other parts of the state. And this is where a significant piece of our donor base lives, I imagine that we are experiencing this being lived out and are just not as aware of it as the research is now is now making us. That's what I would say about it. So Liz, Thank I mean, you. if you had time, which I know is always a bit of a challenge, particularly <laughs> with this new uh, challenge that you put in front of yourself, which is so incredibly impressive, it might be interesting to go in the database and see what you can learn. Uh, we very often say that the answers to some of these perplexing issues is in the database. And the more we understand who our donors are, the better able we are to tailor messages to reach more of the people who are the, ma the majority in our database. So I know that uh, maybe, you know, on the extra day that we get every four years, maybe that could be a focus uh, of some of the work, because I do think it's going to be an illustrative exercise. Thank you. Yeah, I would love to have more free days than every four years. You know, um, <laughs> one of the things we have found to be very true of our our donors who are single women is that while we talk a lot about motherhood and the challenges that come to families that have children, among single women, that isn't a known that isn't a known quantity. And so it isn't the thing that prompts people to say, oh, I want to help women like me. And we have broadened our language to talk about supporting and investing in women because of the ripple effects through family, through community, and through economy. And I have learned how to go deeper onto any one of those areas depending on the audience that I am with and particularly for single women who aren't living with kids in their home they're doing a huge amount to lift up their whole community and their extended families and so as we talk about it that can oftentimes resonate um, a message around supporting women and communities or supporting women because of the larger impact on community versus what some people would see as really limiting language around supporting women and families or women and girls. So I think that's interesting as we hear what, like we listen to the feedback we're getting from our donors and, and like retune our messages as a result of that. Oh, that yeah, sounds great. fabulous. Yeah. I always knew you were gonna be the, the trendsetter and the, the pathbreaker and that, I think that's a really good point. Yeah, thank you. And I, I we have I have a colleague here at Campbell and Company who spent 
an earlier chapter of his career at World Vision and, you know, the, this mantra of when women do well, we all do well, I think it is super powerful. And Liz, I see, I've seen that even on your organization's website. What I wrote down, I think, is changing her life affects all of us. So, yeah, that, that subtle shift and even expansion of messaging and how we think about the role of women in society is is really powerful and I think there's a lot more we can we can do there. Uh Andrea, thinking about the role that income plays in charitable decisions, how does income affect where women and men give? So uh, these particular data points deal with high net worth households and what we found is that in high net worth married coupled households, heterosexual households, when the husband is the sole decision maker, the couple will more likely prioritize the economy as a key issue. In other words, something that he is more interested in than she, and less likely to pri prioritize poverty, which she may well be more likely interested in supporting, than in households that make their decisions jointly. And when the wife in the household is the sole, sole decision maker, then the household will be more likely to prioritize human rights. So it goes back to earlier conversations that we've had here where it's it's things that the women can touch and see and feel and very much like the example that you gave about Guatemala and lifting up other communities, um, you, working with the women to, to achieve that. Thanks, Andrea. And Liz, you spoke earlier prior to the recording about some of the observations that you have seen. I think you, you talked about partnership as a theme across all sorts of households, heterosexual same-sex households, et cetera. First of all, just sort of how do you respond to this notion that uh, in high net worth households, uh, when the wife is the sole decision maker, assuming, you know, this is a heterosexual household, that the household is more likely to prioritize human rights. And then what do you maybe see more broadly in terms of thinking about uh, lesbian couples and so on? Mm -hmm. Yeah, good questions. It it's very interesting to hear the data again about how um, the formation of households and what they're prioritizing, how they're making decisions. One thing I would say we have learned over time, particularly at fundraising events, which are not a huge piece of our overall plan or budget, but are still incredibly helpful to us. When there are more couples in the room, whether they are heterosexual or same-sex couples, um, we tend to raise more money. People feel more comfortable raising their paddle or going for the big auction item when they're, you know, the person that they share money is sitting right there with them. They're having a glass of wine and they're getting into it and they make a decision together. I find the same thing if I'm meeting with one person in a couple, and generally I am meeting with women, though that's not 100% of the time. But um, if that person is partnered, whether with a woman or a man at home, the answer tends to be, this is a great idea. I'm really excited. Let me go talk to my partner and get back to you. So we find that partners are often investing more when they're together at events. And I am finding that people are oftentimes wanting to go home and talk to their partner before they make a, you know, a thousand dollar or larger commitment to Women's Funding Alliance. And that is holding true across whether those couples are gay, lesbian, or heterosexual. And Liz, and the nice thing is that what, yeah, what, you, what you just shared affirms the research. We always like when that happens. 
uh, in the sense that married couples do give more. And, you know, part of that is because they have more resources uh, to give, but uh, that is that does seem to be the pattern from other categories of research. So your experiences are bearing that out, which is always fun. That is always fun. And, you know, I will say that some of our fundraising events have gone from maybe 10 or 12 years ago. It was a Thursday evening fundraiser. It was lots and lots of groups of women coming together, tables of 10 where it was women coming together after work or after being at home during the day. And as we have turned that event into a Saturday night, mostly couples-driven event, we have raised more money. In part, I think that's couples. I would also say that when there are more men in the room, we are raising more money, even if they've come without their spouse. And some of that is just the function of our economics and you know who tends to have more resources to think about giving in general. Thanks, Liz. Uh, Andrea, I think uh, the final question on the research is what role children and having children plays into or factors into giving uh, decisions and kind of some interesting findings here, depending on whether people have a daughter or a son. So enlighten us, please. Well, it is it is really quite fun because not only when you add your first child in a household, you know, is it a somewhat daunting task, something that we've never done before, but it turns out that the children's order, that the gender of the children's order, and who's the firstborn does matter in terms of the causes that that family will support. So people whose only child is a daughter, in other words, they have just one child and it's a daughter, would tend to give more to education and basic needs. And I think that goes back to this general idea that they want to they want to make sure that their daughter grows up in a world where other people's education and needs are met. People whose firstborn child, so there could be multiple children in the family, is a son, also give more to education. They also give more to youth and family services. So it's not a whole lot of data points to go by, but sometimes when we're doing, when we're visiting with donors, it helps to um, think about the extended family. Yeah, thank you. Liz, any any uh, experiences or, or observations you've taken away from your work with people that do or do not have children? And, and I know you have one of your own. So what can we learn from you? <laughs> I do. I do. I have a second grade. Um, I have a daughter who's in second grade. It's a very fun age, and it's been really fun to involve her in philanthropy. What we have seen, I think, follows this, but in uh, follows the research, but in a more general way, is that for a lot of men who come to our work of lifting up women and girls in our community, they first come to it because they are fathers of daughters. And so I think there is a lot of awareness. I think that for when men become fathers, they start to see a whole different set of community issues. And it sounds like that really varies, whether it's a daughter or a son. And while I wish that all of us could see our way to understanding the circumstances that um, and the society that we've created that women and girls live in and the structural obstacles we've put in place that need to get undone, I wish we all saw that because fundamentally inequity is bad. But for a lot of us, we come to that, again, from personal experience and wanting to 
wanting to make change. And so there's also really good research that says that men who are CEOs who have a daughter lead more socially responsible companies that benefits change. Like companies are different when um, there's a man at the top who then has a daughter. And so I think we're seeing that same pattern in philanthropy as we are in wider civic and corporate leadership. Fascinating. Well, I think in closing, I would love to wrap this up by the, the three of us just sharing some some thoughts and advice for our colleagues in the nonprofit sector who are working smart and hard to engage people in their work and engage women in their work, both as you know volunteers, as ambassadors, and certainly as donors. I, I heard a couple of things from the two of you throughout our conversation that I'll put a put a double underline to the first is, you know, the age old wisdom of making sure that you are tailoring your appeals to the decision makers in the households that you're engaging with and especially when you're engaging with women decision makers that you're speaking to the the issues and the experiences that this research tells us they 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 care about. Secondly, it's clear to me that if you are working on behalf of a mission in the international realm, in the religious sphere, in healthcare, or in youth and family services, it would behoove you to have a strategy for engaging women in your community, again, in, in a multitude, in a multitude uh, of ways. And finally, I think this idea of uh, experience and identity and uh, what nonprofit organizations can do to create meaningful experiences for women, both in terms of engaging with their mission, but also in engaging with other women who share their values and their interest in that organization. Uh, those are a few things that I take away from this. What about uh, the two of you? And Liz, maybe I'll turn to you next and we can ask Andrea, to, to bring it home. <laughs> That's great. You've highlighted that um, you've highlighted all the pieces that I think I would offer. I would just add one more kind of spin or subtext to it, which is to not assume that women are too busy. I sometimes can think, oh my goodness, all of us have really full lives. Am I asking too much of our donors? Am I inviting too much? Is this you know, is this putting too much on people's plates? And overwhelmingly, people come back and are like, yes, I want to be part of that process. Yes, I want to do that. Yes, I want to come to that town hall or that convening with you. And um, so I think there is this hunger to engage. And I would just say, don't assume that people are too busy to be written out of that process. Keep inviting women even women who you perceive to have incredibly full lives, we still want to do all of that. We want to have those uplifting, community-oriented moments in the middle of lives that are really full of family and work. Thank you, Liz. Liz, I support that that 100%. The, The group that I tend to worry about when we're thinking about analyzing our database in, with, with segments and thinking about single women and single men and married couples and gay couples and all the configurations of families that we know of today is that the smaller nonprofits who might be stretched to their limits would embrace this understanding that our goal today is to work smarter, not harder. And what it means here is we're not going to throw out fundraising strategies. We're going to tweak them 
in ways that can appeal to donors where, where they are, because that's our job as, as fundraisers in particular, is to engage the donor and to meet his or her interests and needs in ways that our organization can, not about mission creep, but rather to say, we know you're interested in this, come along with us, here's some ways in which you can do that and make it as easy as possible. And I think Liz has given some really exceptional examples of that, moving the event from a weekday to a weekend to engage more men. I mean, it's gonna take men and women working together to address the seemingly intractable, intractable problems that we have in our society today. So we need, we need to engage both of them individually, collectively, and honor Liz's comment to say, give people an opportunity, don't second guess them, give people an opportunity to engage. Terrific advice, you two. Thank you. And on that note, I want to say thank you again for uh, taking the time to share your wisdom and experience today. Andrea Pachter, Interim Director of Women's Philanthropy Institute, and Liz Vivian, President and CEO of the Women's Funding Alliance. We really appreciate your wisdom, and thank you, everyone, for listening in today. That's it for today's podcast. On behalf of Campbell and & Company and the Women's Philanthropy Institute, thanks for tuning in. For more fundraising insights, follow Campbell & Company and the Women's Philanthropy Institute on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn.